Well, I appreciate so much the feedback you all have given. I know I'm new to this place, but many of you came up and said, you know, I'm glad you're preaching on this topic. It's stepping on my toes a little bit, but I really want to be encouraged and need to in this new year in some new ways. And so I'm grateful for that encouragement. Uh, We're doing a series called I Give, and you'll notice in the logo that there's an eyeball attached to that eye. And it's a reminder of what Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 6. We talked about this last week. Jesus uses a Jewish metaphor called the good eye. And he says, those who are generous are those that have a healthy eye or a good eye. But the stingy have an evil eye toward things. I know there have been times in my life where I've had both of those kinds of eyes. But I, I like the way Jesus uses that metaphor because it's a reminder that the way we see the world, the way we view the world, has an impact on the way we're generous with our money or we tend to be people who hold back some of that. So I guess the question I want to lead with this morning is, what is your worldview when it comes to generosity? What is your worldview in general? And it's hard to kind of know what that is without peeling back some layers. And I want to do that this morning by looking at the story of Israel, of God's people, all the way back in the book of Exodus. Because I think what happens in Exodus shapes the people of God for many years to come. So in the story of Exodus, many of you may have seen you know, the Ten Commandments movie, or maybe you've been told about Moses and the Ten Commandments if you're new to faith. But this story in the book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And the people of God for over 400 years spend time in bondage under Pharaoh's leadership in Egypt. And uh, that kind of life will change a person in many ways, right? Because we have to realize today, we think of slavery sometimes as a thing of the past. But there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been at any point on the earth. So this is not a past issue. This is an issue that still plagues people today that we need to be outspoken about and changing in whatever ways we can be involved in. But the people of God, their worldview was shaped by their time in slavery. It happened in several ways. I'm going to look at the story this morning in Exodus. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. But I think it's important for us to see that even though God freed Israel from bondage in Egypt. He freed them from Pharaoh, freed them through the Red Sea to the Promised Land, even though that's true. It was hard to get Israel out of Egypt. But you know, sometimes it's even harder for God to get Egypt out of Israel. Some of us have experienced bondage of different kinds, and we might find freedom from that, but there's still things that we take from that bondage that have to be rooted out of us over time. And sometimes it's not as simple as leaving something behind. Still we sit with the impact of that kind of life. So a couple of things that I see impacting the worldview of Israel as they go forward into the desert and toward the promised land. Number one, in Egypt they served multiple gods. It was a polytheistic culture. They served gods of the Nile and the sun god, Ra. They served all kinds of gods. Pharaoh was considered to be a god. So think about coming from that worldview where you needed something, you would find the god you needed to pray to and offer a sacrifice. Uh, that's the culture that Israel grows up in. Many of these people were born into this. And as they're leaving, that doesn't leave with them. They still have this worldview that kind of wanders with them into the desert. And God has to work with them on that. Another part of their worldview is they, they have a worldview that I would call a worldview of scarcity. And many of us still live in this kind of world where we, we talk about the world as a, a pie. and We have to have our piece of the pie. And if someone takes too much, then we're not going to have enough for us and for ours. And this is a reality in many places throughout our world. We think of the world as a, a scarce place. There's not enough to go around. 
But God tried to put a new worldview in Israel. And I want to talk about some of the ways that he tried to shape their mindset to trust him as their only God, but also to help them see that this world is a world of abundance and God is the owner of all things. So if you have your Bibles, open to Exodus chapter 20, as I said. The Ten Commandments show up there. And we often think of the Ten Commandments as, you know, ten great laws or maybe the greatest ones. I don't know that they're the greatest. In fact, Jesus later says to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors yourself are the greatest. But these are ten key moments or ten key commands that God gives to Israel. Many of us remember that command, the first one, you shall not have any other gods before me, right? That's a significant passage of Scripture. It's a significant command that God gives. And it's a huge thing for Israel because they had served all these other gods or known a culture where people served many gods. So to to have a God come and say, hey, serve me above all other gods, that's a significant change from the culture they were living in. And as we see them later on worshiping a golden calf, you have to imagine that this comes from their experience in Egypt. They don't just leave Egypt. Egypt has to find a way to leave them as well if they're going to pursue life with God as well. So several ways that God tries to help them Free them from this polytheistic idea to know there's one God that can be trusted. One of those is he sends the ten plagues. And the ten plagues aren't just cool magic tricks. There's more behind them. Because with every one of these ten plagues, God is actually showing that he's more powerful than another God in Egypt. For instance, you've got the plague where God, through Moses, turns the the Nile to blood, right? Well, the, the Egyptians believed that there was a God of the Nile. And so that God was the one who, who sent water their way, that provided everything that they needed in terms of a life source. So when Moses turns the water to blood in the Nile, what God is trying to say is not just, hey, look, this is a cool trick. He's trying to say the God of the Nile is not as powerful as the God who Moses serves. So don't trust in that God because this God's more powerful. Or think back to this time where God turns uh, the world to darkness for a season. You remember this is one of the plagues. Well, the god Ra was the sun god. And what God's trying to say is not just, hey, I can turn off the lights when I want to. But he's saying, look, the sun rises and sets not because of what Ra says, but because of what I say. I'm actually more powerful than this god. All those plagues have these connections. Same thing with the firstborn child being born, the firstborn son who dies, the last plague. Pharaoh would have been seen as a god, and Pharaoh's firstborn son would have been the next Pharaoh. So he would have been seen as divine. What God's trying to say is don't call Pharaoh divine. Don't call his firstborn son divine. No, I'm more powerful. Life is only sustained by the breath that I give. So these ten plagues are significant. But God doesn't just tell them to stop worshiping these gods. I want us to pay attention to Exodus 20. Let's start reading in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we often start the Ten Commandments in verse 3, don't we? Right? That's the first commandment. We learned it if we memorized it growing up, maybe. But I want you to notice specifically what verse 2 says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, the order of this is very important for us to understand. Because there's a lot of people who will talk about in conversion that we need to give people the commands. And once they follow the commands and get in order, then we can accept them into the community of faith. But what does God do? God does not command his people before he saves his people. He frees them from bondage. He sends them through the Red Sea. And the commands don't show up until later on in the story. What he does is he says, if you're, you need to learn to trust me. I'm going to save you so you can have a relationship with me. And out of that relationship... 
here's the commands that come. So he even starts the Ten Commandments not with, here's my command. He says, let me remind you of who I am. I'm the God who brought you through the Red Sea. You remember that moment, don't you? I can be trusted. I'm a God who saved you before. Now because of that, now that we're having this relationship and growing it, let me give you some ideas about how life can be made better than how it was in Egypt. And the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. So I think the order of that is very significant. We don't start in verse 3. We start with verse 1 and verse 2 where God says, let me remind you of what I've already done. This is what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 4, I talked about this last week. He he starts by showing them the kingdom of God. He demonstrates the kingdom of God. He says, I can be trusted. I'm, I'm healing people. This is what I'm about. And then he says, okay, here's a way of life to follow the salvation that I'm bringing to the world. Are you with me? Okay, another command that, that God gives, the fourth command is, uh, you, you should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now this command is something they wouldn't have followed in Egypt as slaves, would they have? To know a break or a day off, that wasn't what was part of the deal. They wanted to go and worship God in the desert for a few days. You remember this? Moses goes and asks Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no, because they've got to keep working. That's what this is all about. They're treated as animals in Egypt. But part of what God's trying to do with the Sabbath is to remind them, you're not animals to work every single day of the week. Maybe some of us need to hear this this morning. It's seven days of work over and over again. That's not sustainable. That God has set up a rhythm through creation, of, of, of creating the world in six and then resting with one. And this is the rhythm that God gives to Israel to say, you don't act like you did in Egypt just because you worked all the time. That doesn't mean that's healthy. You've got to find a day of rest, a day to recuperate, a day to honor God and to remember the Sabbath. God's trying to restore them. To, to not, these commands aren't just oppressive commands. God is trying to let them know, this is how you're to live. This is the best way of life. It's better than what you were taught in Egypt You can't just take Israel out of Egypt. You've got to begin to take Egypt out of Israel. And that's what God is doing. Later on, there's a command about stealing. You remember this command? You shall not steal. And then what do we find when God provides manna in the desert? They don't really follow the commands as God wants them to do, right? In fact, let's pick up in Exodus 16, beginning in verse 17. This is when God gives manna, uh, this bread uh, from heaven to the people. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, talking about the manna, and some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it till morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Now, can you blame these people for storing up a little bit extra for the next day after what they've been through for 400 years? Some of you have seen the TV show Survivor before, right? It's a show Holly and I love. It's like the, basically this, you know, g- game show where they starve people and then make it a social experiment and show you what happens. Um, Jeff Probst is like a modern-day pharaoh, right? But anyway, this show, you know, there's always this point in every show where, where people are getting hungry, they win some kind of challenge, and they're able to get food as a reward after the challenge. And you know what they do every time? There's at least one in the group that eats way too much, right? Because they've been starving themselves, and they're not used to eating that much, and it makes them sick along the way. This is what Israel's trying to do. We're trying to store up because there may not be enough for tomorrow. So let's eat all we can today. Let's save it up. And God says, no, no, no. You've got to trust me. Tomorrow, there's going to be enough food. I'm going to provide for you again. God is building a relationship with Israel by helping them trust day by day in his providence and what he provides for them. 
My kids are the same way sometimes. Maddox, he's five years old, and this kid hoards like no other kid you've ever seen. And that's hard as a parent when you find food in your kid's bedroom. Because you're like, wait, we feed you enough, right? You don't need to hoard this stuff. There's always going to be more in the pantry. There's something about that as a father that doesn't feel right. I think God feels the same way sometimes, doesn't he? He's like, why are you hoarding all this? There will be enough tomorrow. You don't have to, you don't have to steal. You don't have to grab. There, depend on me and there's going to be enough. I mean, the other day Maddox was hiding the remote because he found the channel he wanted and didn't want me to change. I'm like, I knew where to go. It was in his bedroom somewhere. I'm finding his stashes all over the house. But seriously, isn't this what we do? And as a parent, I see this with my son, and I think, how can he not trust me? And I think sometimes God's wondering the same thing and asking us the same question. Would you get rid of your stashes? Would you trust me in this? Would you trust that I'm going to provide for you in the days to come? So how does Israel change their worldview? Well, several things. They learn to trust that manna is going to come every morning, except for the Sabbath, and he provides two days the day before. They learn to trust that Yahweh can be trusted better than the gods of Egypt. And they learn to rest one day a week because they're trusting God. If I rest, you're still going to go on with the world and do fine without me working. So here's the key principle that I want you to get this morning. God is the owner of everything. He owns everything. We are just his money managers. And that's an important understanding for us to get. In fact, Psalm 24, verse 1, talks about this. It's, it's really a key for us to understand, I think, as we think about money and possessions and all this. This is what Psalm 24, verse 1 says. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is our belief as Christians, the Jewish people as well. God, God says, I, I'm the one who owns everything. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I have everything you can need, everything in the world. I own all of it. But God also gives some of this. We are his stewards. And, and, and the passage that Galen read earlier in our service in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, talks about this idea, about what he's given to us and what our role is as his, his representatives in the world. It says in Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So these two passages are pretty un- crucial for us understanding our role. God owns everything, but he's called us to rule over the things that he's put on the earth. So that doesn't change the fact that he's the owner. He's the owner, but he's put those things in our hands to rule over, to care for, to nurture, to multiply, all of those things. That is our role that God has given to us. We don't own the creation, and that's important for us to understand as well. But we're to be stewards and to rule well over his creation as his representative. Now, it's easy to forget all this about ownership, and, and that's why I want to show you a quote that I saw just this week from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. Some of you love this book, I know. So in the book, uh, C.S. Lewis writes about a conversation between an elder demon named Screwtape and his younger protege named Wormwood, trying to figure out ways to hurt Christians, hurt those who are trying to follow God. And, and they are kind of got a strategy session that we get to kind of glimpse in this book. And one of the things he has to say is about ownership. And I want to read that section right now. C.S. Lewis writes, a, a, a sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. This is what uh, Screwtape says. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and hell, and we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from their belief that they own their bodies. We produce this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. 
we teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun. Finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my master, and my country to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. And all the time the joke is on that word, my. In its fully possessive sense, this word cannot be uttered by a human being in relationship to anything. In the long run, either our father, Satan, or the enemy, God, will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies belong. Certainly not to them. At present, the enemy says mine of everything on the legalistic grounds that he had made it. Our Father hopes in the end to say mine of all the things on the more realistic and dynamic grounds of conquest. Now there's a lot in that passage that's pretty significant, but the one thing I want to point out is this idea of the pronouns that C.S. Lewis talks about. We have to be very careful about the language we use. Because we'll talk about this a lot. I talk about it. I talk about my house. I talk about my wife, my kids. I talk about a lot of things with the my pronoun on the front. But the truth is, in a world where God owns everything, it's not ours. My is actually not an okay pronoun to use. Now, obviously, we use this in our discourse. And someone reminded me after the service, okay, your wife might not be your wife, but you might not want to share her, right? There are some things we understand we don't share, right? That's a good thing to get on the tape recording for second service since I didn't get it in first. There's some things we don't share to the same degree as others. But God's given us a lot of things that are not ours to own. They're ours to share and to be generous with. Which brings me to two stories in the Gospels that I want to share that have something to do with this idea of abundance and a worldview of scarcity. The first one shows up in Luke chapter 12. If you have your Bibles open to that passage, Luke 12, verse 16 It's the parable of the rich fool. You you may have heard this before. This is a a parable, a story that Jesus tells. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life, easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, did you notice the pronoun that he uses earlier in that? He said, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my See, the rich fool has started from a problem of thinking that he owned all the things that he'd been given. Now, the harvest had been poured out by God, right? And if he got things in order, he'd begin to realize, this isn't all of mine, but but what does he do? He builds bigger barns. Now, this is a a hard word for those of us who live in this culture. Because we have, like, a whole industry built on building bigger barns, right? It's called the banking industry. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to save up or to take care of your family in, in special ways. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying if we're not careful, we don't hear the hard word that Jesus has to share with us. Listen to the way St. August, uh, Augustine uh, said and talked about this passage, the rich fool, th- over a thousand years ago, well over. This is what he says. He was hoarding perishable crops. I repeat, he was hoarding perishable crops. While he was on the point of perishing because he had handed out nothing to the Lord before whom he was due to appear. How will he know where to look when at the trial he starts hearing the words, I was hungry and you did not give me to eat. 
He was planning to fill his soul with excessive and unnecessary feasting, was proudly disregarding all those empty bellies of the poor. And listen to this last line. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Well, that line has just been sitting with me this week. That we think the safest place to put our things is in the bank when God says, the bellies of the poor, Augustine helps us with this, the bellies of the poor may be safer places. What does Jesus say? Last week we talked about this. If you store up your treasure on earth, those things, moths will destroy, rust will break, thieves will break in and steal. But if you store up things in heaven, those things last forever. And that's what Augustine is tapping into, I think, is this idea that if we think if we can build bigger barns or save up enough, then we'll be safe. And, and the truth is, our treasure is much safer in God's hands than it is in our own. But here's the roundabout thing about the incredible nature of the blessings God gives us is God's the owner, and he actually puts them to our use. He puts them in our hands to do something with. And if that passage doesn't affect you, we've got to pay more attention to what Scripture is trying to say. There's a woman uh, at the church that I came from at Littleton, a woman named Helen who's a widow. And every time I hear the story of the widow and the two copper coins, I think of Helen. In fact, I want to read that passage right now. That's the other passage I want to share with you. Mark Chapter 12, Mark 12, beginning in verse 41. So Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. So a few years ago at at Littleton, I decided I was going to preach through a a portion of Acts. And I I preached on the story of Acts chapter 2. And we talked about uh, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit being poured out on the people there. We talked about baptism and the importance of repentance and all this. We know those portions, but maybe we've forgotten what follows all of that. In in Acts 2, 42 and following, this is what the early church did and how they lived with each other. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And to fellowship and the breaking of bread into prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And we read verse 45, and I want to read it again. And we tried to seek, how do we live this out? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so what we decided we were going to do is we were going to have a rummage sale. And, and we were going to give the proceeds of that rummage sale to those in our community who might need it, uh, in our church family or in the community around us. It, it was great. People did this. They kept giving weeks for weeks to come in boxes that we designed as Acts 2 boxes of, as a benevolence ministry. But this rummage sale, one of the things I challenged our people to do was don't just bring your trash items, your garage sale items. Like, I'm challenging you to bring something of value to you and to give that away on behalf of those who don't have enough. Because this is what it means to be in community together. So we had this rummage sale, and and Helen, this uh, retired woman, widow, who's on a a fixed income, she came and and, and she struggles to get by on a regular basis. But i got to tell you, she came that day with some prized possessions. She took it to heart. There, was, there were these plates, some china, that had 
animals painted on them. Probably it trashed for a lot of people, but for Helen, they meant the world. I don't know the whole story behind them, but I remember her bringing them that day. And she was struggling. Tears were welling up in her eyes as she was struggling with the fact that I, I want to offer to God, but this is one of the only possessions I have on earth that matters to me. And she was only going to get a few dollars for these plates, something that meant much more to her. But there was somebody in that church who decided, I'm going to buy those plates back and give the money and give those plates back to Helen. It was a wonderful moment just to see what God did through that. But I, I, I can't help but think about Helen when I read this text because a lot of us brought our trash that day to help sell to others. And there was money that was raised. But I saw in her will, a willingness to give something that mattered, that was a treasure to her in order to give to those who didn't have enough when she was the one who probably needed more than the rest of us. And I hear the story of Jesus, and I think about this woman, I'm thinking, you know, if you were to read this story to your neighbors, they'd say you're crazy. Like, people who don't have enough shouldn't give all they have because the rest of us are going to have to take care of them now. Like, have a little responsibility. Let those of us who have enough give, and you all keep what... But what Jesus did was saw this woman was willing to give up. And some of us need to learn the gift of hospitality. Not giving hospitality, but receiving hospitality. Because when you receive a gift that you think you don't deserve or, or, or you think they don't have the money to offer that, when you give, receive that gift, you're giving a gift to someone else who gets to give you a gift in return. Larry James, who's the leader at City Square here in Dallas, Central Dallas Ministries before, tells the story about People who were worried at the beginning of that ministry about corn that was being stolen off their shelves as the people around them started to work, some of the homeless around them. And, and he has this quote that's, that's a great reminder for me, kind of like Augustine's quote for me. He says, you know what? Around here, we may have some corn that's stolen, but we're not going to have any dignity stolen in, in this place any longer. This ability to let people serve, this ability to realize that it's not the finances we have that are most important. It's the dignity that we spread around, that we give to people, that in our receiving hospitality, we offer gifts as well. So in the end, everything you have is a gift from God. Everything you have is a gift from God. You don't own anything. And we've got a choice like the people of Israel. Are we going to continue to live with a mentality of scarcity to say there's not enough going around? Or are we finally going to open up to the point we realize we've got plenty? See, God gives you money. He's given you all your life resources to live on. And, and those resources, it's amazing. We often talk about that as our income or my salary. But let me tell you, God gives you something and then he gives you the ability to choose what your income is going to be out of the overall gift he gives you. But that's not how we think about things, is it? Most of us think about, well, all, everything I get, that's mine. But, but what Jesus is offering is, here's what I'm going to give to you. Now set your salary out of that and think about how you're going to be generous with the rest that God has given. And, and when, when you begin to think that way, all of a sudden you realize that everything is a gift. And when everything is a gift, you can hold on to things a bit more loosely. I start to think about gifts and holding on to things loosely at different times of the year. I start to think about it at Christmas when we give to others. I start to think about it in seasons of missions contribution and benevolence. But you know, there are times where people will send me a missions uh, request for a mission trip they're going on, and I think, man, I, that's annoying. Would they stop sending these to me? Because they're asking for my money. What, I, what I'm beginning to believe and realize, they're not asking for my money. They're asking for God's money. That's money that happens to be in my pockets. But if you begin to realize this, it's fun to give money that you it's fun to spend someone else's money, right? I mean, some of you are in fundraising, and it's your job to fundraise dollars so you can spend it other people's money. That's fun. It's hard to raise it sometimes, but that's fun. 
But what we need to realize is that every one of us, every time we spend money or give it away, we're spending someone else's money. It's God's money. There's no reason to hold on to it. It's his gift that he's given to us that we get to pass on to others. And money can be a problem for many of us. It has at times in the past in our own life. So, some of you may have broken relationships in your families or you may have, have, have problems or maybe a, a divorce has happened as a result of financial issues that became up and, and, and became a problem. I know that money has the ability to tear people apart and do all kinds of harm. But what I found over the years is sometimes the things that we fight over or the inheritances that cause problems and rifts, that the things we thought were so important that divided our relationships, a lot of them are sitting in landfills right now. But they were so important in the moment we fought over them. I heard the story the other day about John Wesley. Wesley was the beginning of the Methodist movement and some of frontier revivalism earlier in our country's history. John Wesley was on this plantation owner's property. And they rode their horse around this property. It was so big, they couldn't get around to it on their horses. And they came around the dinner table later that night, and, and the, guy, the owner said, hey, what do you think about the property? And he said, man, it's going to be really hard for you to let go of this one day. When I think about our resources, that's not how I think about it. I'm more like the plantation owner who thinks, man, come, and, come, come join our house. Let us feed you. Let us show you the abundance that God's given. But sometimes these possessions get a hold of us. This is why this series is not about what this church wants from you. It's not. This is about what God wants for you, and it's about freedom. And if we could open our hands and see what God wants to do with these gifts, you'd be amazed at the generous blessing it is to be able to give rather than to receive. You know this as a parent or a grandparent or, or a son or daughter that gives a gift. When you get to give that gift, that's the greatest thing. I saw this at a birthday party the other day. One of the, one of the kids, it's, his love language is giving gifts, I could tell. Because he sat in front of it and he was excited for his gift to be open. And when it was, he, he had this look of joy on his face. I'm thinking, that's what giving to the kingdom is all about. So as we close today, let me challenge you on just a few things. First of all, let me, I want to challenge you to think about your pronouns this week. Think about the my that you use. And it's okay to use that at times. I understand in our world. But think about what you really mean behind that. I also want you to think about Psalm 24.1. God's the owner of all things. We're just stewards. We're money managers. How are we doing when it comes to that? And then finally, what does it look like to be a generous people? What does it look like to not see the world through a lens of scarcity, but sees it as a generous thing, a, a world of abundance? And how might that change us to live into that? Let's pray together as we close our time. God, I thank you so much for these stories. I thank you for Helen and others that have women in their minds like her.